Blog Talk Radio.
And our theme for tonight is a continuation. It's part two with the theme Western Deception or African Corruption. We'd like to invite you to come and participate with us tonight by calling in at 323-679-0841 if you may have any views or questions as it relates to various issues that we will discuss. And like always, the way we get started with our party here on Africa on the Moon is to first introduce you to our political panelists for today's program. At this time, we'd like to start off and bring in our brother, Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Move. Hey, uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. My name is Haki Kamati Mishoki, Colonel with African Awareness, and I'm all about the institution building. Uh, it seems to me, in light of the circus that is Washington, D.C., when you look at this um, confirmation process of an individual who, by uh, many instances, uh, has a real problem in terms of relationship with women, the mere fact that so many come to his defense speaks boldly in terms of a sense of entitlement among white males in the society. And because they have a sense of entitlement, this notion that other lives are not important is, is kind of a, uh, a measuring stick in which they use in terms of measuring how to interact with people uh, um, according to their economic status. So I'm very concerned when we talk about economic status and we talk about the relatively low standing in terms of social economics when it comes to the African community. And we're very, very concerned in terms of perception of our people in society. Uh, one of the things when we talk about the sense of entitlement, and clearly African people are not held in high esteem, which means that they would do anything and everything to us. And so given that reality, then it's, it's behoove us to create institutions, uh, ways of thinking, ways of seeing the world to protect ourselves against what is coming down the road. So institutions are extremely important. I encourage people to get busy about the process of creating institutions because it is our lifeline. And Brother Africa, I'm going to thank you for having me on the program. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Father Brother Hackey, we now will bring in Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. <laughs> Revolutionary greetings to the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism, which is the ultimate solution to the problems of facing Africans all around the world. Father and Brother Anthony, we now will bring in Brother Jabari. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Peace, everybody. This is Brother Jabari, resident researcher, looking forward to another insightful program. As usual, I'm grateful for the opportunity um, to serve with the panelists. Father Brother Bobby, we now have with us Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And I thank you, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show one more time. 
Thank you, Brother Moses. And Father and Brother Moses, we're bringing our sister, Sister Haley. Sister Haley, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, Brother Africa and fellow panelists. Uh, looking forward to this evening's conversation as usual and learning something. And I am Sister Hattie, a longtime retired public school administrator and teacher, and currently working on a nonprofit organization, building it up from the ground, Women United. And what we do is we support women and help women on whatever portion of their journey they're on and nationwide, international if necessary. Thank you very much. We thank you for your presence today, Sister Hattie. Well, as all this, what we're going to do for the first half of the program, like always, we're going to entertain our first segment, deal with what's going on in your world community. So we ask each one of our political panelists to give us some kind of update on what's going on in our world and the community. Brother Haki. Yeah, first, I want to uh, mention African Awareness Association is doing a Black History Education and Cultural Tour of Cuba. They're going to Matanza, Trinidad, and Havana. This takes place December 27th of January 3rd, 2019. For more information, we ask people to contact us at 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435. For visitors, Visit us at the website, www.aaa-cubatours.com, and we encourage people to go to Cuba for themselves firsthand, the beauty or the marvel that is Cuba. And I have to say that, brother, uh, I forgot one other thing I want to share with the audience. And recently I read an article on how OPEC snubs Trump. Uh, The thing is that Trump was making a statement about his desire for the OPEC oil-producing countries to uh, increase their oil production by 2 million barrels. And now the OPEC had decided they're going to increase oil production but only 1 million barrels, one million barrels uh, quarterly. Now, the thing is that Trump is saying that he insists that the 2 million barrel limit be met because his position was that uh, increasing the production of oil is going to lower the prices, and particularly when you talk about large U.S. consumer demand, low prices are needed in terms of meeting that demand. Well, of course, this is, this is a... This is a this is a lie. I mean, this is something typical that comes out of Washington, D.C. in terms of the lies, what they say on one hand, and what, what actually is happening behind the scenes. Because behind the scenes, the thing is this. If they really wanted to lower prices of oil, they could do two things. They could end the sanctions against Venezuela and Iran. Or secondly, he could mandate, uh, well, of course, in the context of the capitalist system, he can't, he can't really mandate, but he could at least it acts as wealthy clans, as wealthy investors, to, to to cash in their future shares, which will cause the, the price of oil to automatically drop. This certainly will facilitate the U.S. need in terms of uh, in terms of oil. Uh, he he won't propose either of those ideas, and the reason why it has nothing to do in terms of consumer demand. What it has everything to do with is politics. And one of the things that Iran and Venezuela have been very successful in doing. It's actually bother their oil to use it as a use it as a, uh, a, a a commodity to back up their currencies, and as a consequence, it really takes U.S. out of the equation, which means that the U.S. is very upset by this you know by this by this by the particular move. So, in particular, when we talk about Venezuela, we talk about the cryptocurrency, and we talk about Venezuelans creating 300 million barrels you know set aside simply to back their currency. 
It means that the U.S. has no real power in terms of undermining the economy. So as a consequence, what the U.S. is talking about is, is military intervention in, the, in, 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 in the Venezuela. But I say all this, and this is important people understand that aside from the, the geopolitics of it all, one of the things when you bring it down home, one of the things we understand, when we look at the stores, so recently over the last two weeks, stores have been empty of, of all kinds of supplies. And in fact, one of, one of the problems a lot of scientists have been articulating is that, well, as social scientists have been articulating, is that one of the things that they anticipate in terms of rise in terms of cost of food, which means that you get, when you look at the average earnings in America, the people's ability to buy food is actually compromised, which means that people can't buy as much food as they want or desire. So if they can't buy enough food uh, because of their earnings, then why would you why would you stock the shelves with food that's not going to be be um, sold? So therefore, um, we, when we talk about these kind of uh, tactics um, employed by you know the White House in terms of you know attempt to starve you know global economy, we have to keep in mind that these, these moves also adversely impact the functioning United States of America. And so, when we look at food shortages in in in, um, in, in the supermarkets. We're going to ask ourselves inevitably what's going on. But more importantly, I think what's important for African people to understand is that this is, this is a mere um, sampling of the future. We've got to understand that, you know, when we, when we look at this kind of phenomenon in terms of absence of food on the shelves, then we've got to ask ourselves, what does that mean in terms of your fundamentally longevity in society? If there's no food, then we can anticipate a certain amount of anger to, to, to manifest itself. Do we really think that when this anger manifests itself, that somehow the government's going to take responsibility for its policies in terms of facilitating these food shortages in the first place? Of course not. It's going to look for scapegoats. African people in America must understand that the scapegoats are going to be African people. It's very, very simple. You've got to understand that. So there is a cause and effect relationship between what they do in Washington and the impact it has on the domestic economy here in America. We've got to understand that African people will be the scapegoats for any kind of downturn. So we got to wake up, we got to organize, we have to create institutions because we really don't have any choice. But that's my final statement. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. Next, we're going to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay. Um, well, let's see. I guess the most important uh, event taking place locally is the U.N. General Assembly is uh, meeting in New York for the next couple of weeks. And in conjunction uh, with that, uh, there is a high-level Cuban delegation that includes uh, President uh, Rafael Canel, uh, who, who would be speaking at Riverside Church, uh, located at 490 Riverside Drive in New York, New York, this Wednesday, September 22nd. Uh, between 8 and 10 p.m. Uh, for those people who will be in the vicinity of New York during this time, there are about two days left to get uh, tickets for the event. Um, you can contact uh, IFCO Pastors for Peace for more information and to arrange to get your uh, to arrange to get a ticket. Uh, the, the ticket has to be in your hand at, at the time of the event. Brother Anthony, can I just stop you one quick second and make a correction? I think you meant to say the event can take Wednesday, September 26th. 26th, okay, did I? Okay. Yeah, yes. 26th. Okay. And 
to add to that announcement, for more information, they can always call 212-926-5757, extension 6, or you can call 917-6887-8710. Let me call the number back again, 917-887-8711. One zero. We're going to continue. Okay, and and also uh, and also the and also uh, you know they uh, they'll be given a, an update on the situation in Cuba, and of course uh, and and of course during the uh, uh, meeting of the UN General Assembly, they'll call for an end to the blockade against Cuba. And um, it's interesting that coincides with um, Trump's efforts to undo all the uh, 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 all the uh, thawing of relations that uh, that Obama had uh, engineered during his presidency. And so again, uh, they uh, uh, the U.S. administration is discouraging people. From uh, check visiting Cuba and seeing what's going on for themselves. So. Okay. Father and Brother Anthony, we bring in Brother Jabari. Jabari, what's going on in your world, the community? Well, I recently read an article entitled Neil deGrasse Tyson, a celebrity salesman for the military industrial complex. Now, for those who may be unfamiliar with his work, Neil deGrasse Tyson is probably one of the most well-known astrophysicists um, out of the U.S. Originally based out of New York, Neil deGrasse Tyson went to the Bronx Academy for the Sciences and um, would later be college-educated and has since been making contributions in terms of the science field. Now, what a lot of people may not know is that Neil deGrasse Tyson is an outspoken advocate for um, initiatives such as what um, Number 45 proposed in terms of space police or the militarization of space. And matter of fact, um, Mr. Tyson is has um, was one of the authors of a book. Let me find the title. Well, excuse me, I can't find the tab right now. But anyhow, in regards to the book that he's promoting, it's making an argument based off of other studies that have taken place that it is very imperative to the U.S. interest to have this space weaponization program in effect. And it should also be noted that this isn't the first time Mr. Tyson has done this because during the administration of George W. Bush, she was part of a panel that looked into researching these kind of phenomena. So we've got to understand that this has been an ongoing trend it's just that we weren't necessarily made privy to what's going on until 45, making this so obvious in terms of the so-called space police. Okay. Thank you, Jabari. Father Jabari, we bring in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Yes. Um, the, the, the Metropolitan D.C. Coalition in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution are members of the National Network on Cuba, which is an umbrella group that uh, focuses on on Cuba, and and uh, the National Network on Cuba is having this fall meeting and conference October 20th through 21st, 2018, 
in Minneapolis, Minnesota. There will be delegates from the Cuban embassy, and uh, and uh, a lot of groups will be there. For for information, you can visit the website nnoc.info, or you can call the number six one seven two five four nine zero seven zero for more information. That's six one seven. Two five four nine zero seven zero, and so that's that will be it for the National Network on Cuba. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Brother Moses. Then we go, to Sister Haley. Sister Haley, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, like, thank you. Like I said, it's a lot, and we do support women no matter what journey that they're on. Uh, we are still working on our uh, Black Women Wisdom. 90 and up, as well as our reparations for black women, because we we do understand that the Me Too movement is not our movement. Black women do have a certain kind of uh, difference in respect to that. So we will continue with that and uh, do what we can there. And um, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but... Uh, there's an evangelist in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who recently, her son was in jail, 27 years old, um, young brother, Hardell Sherrell, 27 years old, in Beltram County Jail, and he's dead now. After nine days in jail, he's dead. They said he died of some mysterious illness, um, however that is. Uh, a little bit strange, and I think there are three individuals. One was a woman who came up in this same uh, county jail dead, uh, three of them, and I'm not sure what the time frame is on those, but uh, we were able to do some wonderful things to help Evangelist Perry uh, make some decisions around what happens to her her son and those kinds of things that would be helpful by connecting with some of the sisters there in um, Baltimore, Sister Tawanda, and she was able to be just a, a monument of uh, information for Evangelist Perry. And this is her one and only son, dead at 27. He went in healthy, ended up, he's, he's gone now. Uh, another thing that happened just last, I want to say Sunday or Monday, out in um, Delaware, I believe it was, um, a woman, lawyer from um, Delaware. She goes into Philadelphia to work, and and we're we're trying to just communicate and find out what happened to her. She was murdered, shot, and killed while she was getting gas somewhere in Delaware. Uh, she goes into Philadelphia every day every day to work, and she was working on things like uh, housing for seniors, and I understand she was a force to be reckoned with. And um, she also worked on some of those issues around foreclosures, so we can see why her life may have been endangered. So just networking, and uh, she's a, a niece of a very dear friend of mine in Charlotte. And so just trying to find out what, what really happened to her. When someone shoots you at a gas station through the aorta, sounds like a, 
what do you call those people, professional killing, whatever that's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are the kinds of things that African-American women, we have to be able to help each other out even on those kinds of things and uh, not just mentoring each other. So this is unfortunately what's been going on a couple of weeks here um, and us trying to support each other as women and trying to look at some of these systems in place. So uh, we're, we're still still at it. And I think I'm going to be able to get that first part of your, your Cuban event there in Minneapolis on the 20th. Um, okay. What is, yes. What, are, are, are any of you uh, going to be out that way? Um, I'm still working on the Sister Hattie. Oh yeah. Well, I would, I would really. That would be, that would be awesome to connect with you there. And uh, it's been many, many years ago. I used to connect with that group in Minneapolis, but it's really been a long time because they were very active there. I would say 15, 20 years ago around the Cuban uh, situation, and I, I, I was at, at some point um, very active with them. And learning about what was going on with the people there, but I should I should be able to uh, participate in that because some of the other things that are going on there, I'm, I'm trying to support as well. So therefore, maybe we'll see you out there in yeah, Minneapolis. That would be a beautiful thing. That would be a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, panelists, yes. I have a, well, panelists, I have a couple of announcements I would like to make. Then I'll raise some a couple of concerns with y'all, and I'd like to have y'all response to it. First, we'd like to, to remind our listening audience that one of our freedom fighters, Sister Ramona Africa, she still needs your support. She's still battling health issues. She's, um, she's still in the hospital, and they had said out a statement earlier, where it said, from the move, it said that it's informing our supporters, sympathizers, and all those in solidarity with the cause of revolution that Ramona Africa moves Minister of Communication Survival of the May 13, 1985 Holocaust has been hospitalized as a result of health complications coming from a condition called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, a direct result of the ongoing war on wage on our moon family by this government. We lost 24 members today. Two died in prison under suspicious circumstances, turned cancer. Now Ramona diagnosed with cancer, and she again battling to become a survivor. If there are any questions or concerns people want to address, please contact Alberta Africa or Sue Africa at the number 215-387-4107 or help Ramona Africa at gmail.com. The second announcement I'd like to make is there's a Kwame Nkrumah conference to take place on Saturday, September the 29th, from 11:30 a.m. to 9:00 from 11:30 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's again Saturday, September 29th in Richmond, Virginia, at the Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church, located 1720 Mechanicsville Turnpike. 
Richmond, Virginia. For more information, they want you to RSVP. Please call 302-588-1116 or 804-306-2714. There will be at Kwame Nkrumah Conference. They want you to come out to help celebrate the achievements, ideas, and the, and the man who had a vision and blueprint for the liberation of Africa and Africans around the world. There will also be a series of panels that will focus on how we can continue the works of Sagafor, Kwame, and Krumah. Again, the time from 1130 to 6 p.m. That's this Saturday, the 29th of September in Richmond, Virginia. Please come out and support those events. So, panelists, I just recently um, discovered something that was really interesting in terms of proclamation that was made in Philadelphia. Uh, one of the city council members wanted to create a street in, in the honor of one of its former mayor. And this mayor was some goo. Not only did they want to create a street, but they want to put it in the same location where they bombed the Moo people and the Moo family. What do y'all make of that? And the people have been resisting that. There's a ongoing sin struggle try to keep that from happening. Now, from my understanding, when the resolution was proposed, it was never revealed until just recently, when they were saying basically they've already gone through. The city council signed on on it, but the people are against it. So, panelists, what do you make of such such um, recommendation that won't create a streak in the name of Wilson Gould? They say they have done so much, so good, so many good things for the people, the community. They deserve one, but they want to choose the same location where you actually bomb the move family. So what do y'all make of that, panelists? I think it's in the, a slap in the face of uh, the masses of Africans uh, living in uh, Philadelphia. I mean, I think, um, you know, and I think it's an, uh, it's an example of how rampant neocolonialism is in the African community now. That uh, that idea is being entertained. I mean that. Uh, I mean a lot of men, women, and children lost their lives in that attack, and um, you know a, a, a lot of people were injured, and uh, you know in uh, a, a not to mention the property that was damaged. And I think uh, you know, and I think it's um, you know, and. Um, uh, and the MOVE organization, were, were, uh, you know, uh, represents a group of Africans that were that, that were trying to reconnect in their own way with Africa and looking for an alternative way uh, to the U, uh, U.S. capitalist system. And I think it's a move that should be opposed. I mean, um, and again, um, you know, it's an example of capitalism using Africans to... Uh, uh, you, 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 you know, uh, you know, using uh, well, wealthy, uh, relatively wealthy Africans uh, to, uh, you know, to, to control the African masses. Yeah, yeah, I concur. I concur. I think there is a supposition. I think one who says that, you know, if you destroy, humiliate, undermine, demean your people, then the power structure will recognize you uh, for a job well done. I think, sadly, I think it plays to the class element in the African community. I think clearly those, those, those quote-unquote, middle-class Africans whose position is that, you know, um, the, um, 
uh, the highest achievement possible is to be recognized by the state. Uh, see some relevance in terms of elevating you know, uh, Wilson Good to the status of, of a deity. I think that's very, very helpful, but I, but I think nonetheless, from a political point, I understand that you know, that kind of mentality exists in the African community. But by and large, when we talk about the overwhelming number of African people who struggle for justice, uh, who struggle, who struggle, you know, for existence on a day-to-day level, including this, uh, this, this uh, 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 recognition of Wilson Good is a is a finger in the eye to those who value freedom, who who value honesty, who value justice. But clearly, I think, it, as far as the status, status quo is concerned, it's all about you know really humiliating uh, the African community by you know uh, you know actually sort of reinforcing uh, indignity by actually doing it on the same street in which innocent people lost their lives because they simply advocate a different way in terms of seeing the world. So I think that uh, clearly, you know, uh, this is just one of the strategies in terms of a psychological strategy skewed toward, uh, you know, sort of um, <clears throat> undermining in the minds of African people uh, their worth in this world. And so when you legitimize someone who's destructive like Wilson Goo and elevate him uh, <clears throat> to a level almost like a god, then you do so a disservice to those people who are suffering those people who have been humiliated and those people who historically have been marginalized. So I think it's, it's unfortunate, but, you know, the people in, in Philly know exactly what the rally is, and hopefully they are standing up to resist. You know, I would agree with everything that's been said, but I would also add to it that uh, I listened to that program on I believe it was last, well, whatever day it was, I listened to it. And I listened to Wilson Good talk about what happened on that day and what his thoughts were on it. But the the other more troubling thing to me is that this is a second generation of that sort of thing happening because if I'm not mistaken, the black city councilman who men, who was a who was mentored by Mr. Good was the one that put that name forward. But again, like you're saying, the repetition is to give them this kudos. You did a great job for the humiliation and murder of black life and no regard for humanity because children and women and others murdered. And so here you have this second generation of that sort of, um, I guess what you would say, lack of humanity of black people. Because I can guarantee you if you had shot down, killed, blown up some little white babies and some little white women, you certainly wouldn't be getting, matter of fact, you'd be in jail. He'd be in jail right now himself. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's a front. This is this definitely not a good thing. Uh, um, you know, like you say, black, black disability isn't black power. And um, certainly, you know, I don't know that, uh, that he's done anything that's so great for Philadelphia that, that, uh, that I know of. Uh, but uh, obviously, you know, once a black face has been in office, they, there's a tendency to want to celebrate, celebrate, and uh, 
what's going on. I mean, they might as well be giving it to Police Chief Rizzo or, or some other some other reactionary. I mean, it's just not a good thing. Uh, the MOVE organization has been humiliated and, and oppressed and repressed, and there's enough damage that, you know, this psychological warfare needs not go on. Thank you. You know, also to add to this particular phenomenon, it's my understanding that Wilson Gould is also a a minister. And I would like to raise the issue with the panelists today. What is the relevance or importance of being a minister, of being an African minister today? Does it have any relevance today? And what does that mean? What comes with that responsibility, um, panelists? as relates to African community and being a minister today? Um, I think it's a very serious responsibility that comes with that, given the fact that the masses of African people are religious or, or, or if you prefer, spiritual people. And, uh, and I think... Uh, and uh, people tend to look up to ministers, uh, you know, for uh, for guidance. And uh, and I think uh, and I think when uh, when a minister is insincere, they play games with people's faith. And to me, that's worse than stealing from a person to take advantage of someone's belief or faith. In their uh, creator or what they uh, what they understand, and exploit that for your own individual gain. But there is a long history of that happening inside the African community, unfortunately. And it stems and uh, people have read them partly because they don't understand and put their relig- the religious principles that they believe and to practice and they don't understand they memorize dogma but they don't necessarily understand the principles that underlie the religion that they're following and when that occurs you uh you you know you can set yourself up for all kinds of opportunism yeah well you know there's there's no um Disregarding history, uh, one of the things we got to be very, very clear on: the role of the, or the, or the, or the church, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, has something to do with truth, honesty, or even a a a, um, a, a, a solid recollection of what Jesus really means in terms of in terms of theology. Uh, so clearly, uh, their focus has always been to deceive, and that's no question about that. One of the things when we look at colonial history in America, one of the things the first thing they did was they, aside from introducing people to Western Christianity, and I make a distinction between Western and Eastern Christianity, but I'm talking about Western Christianity now, when the first thing the colonial, colonial, uh, wealthy colonial uh, people did was to give us the religion. And so point, they're very circumspect in terms of how the religion was articulated. In fact, initially, what they started off, they had actually had white people, you know, preaching to the African masses in terms of, you know, Western Christianity. But they found out that didn't work, that, in fact, the, the white ministers didn't have the, 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 the temperament, didn't have the timing, didn't have those, 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 uh, those nuances that are so important in terms of making sure a, a, a message is, is perceived favorably. They didn't have that. 
Well, African preachers had the, the timing. They had the temperament. They had all those things which intrinsically was pleasing to the ear of African masters. And so they told them, the, the African preachers, what to say, what they could say, what they couldn't say. And as a consequence, the message that the African preachers gave to the masses of African people were totally disingenuous, which explains why you had your hush harbors in which Africans who understood that spirituality doesn't mean, uh, um, in the circumstances, justifying the enslavement of a people sought to have their own places to worship, own places to strategize, to actually talk about the events of the day. So clearly when we talk about the, the impetus um, in terms of, you know, the African preaching, the African community, it's not a favorable one. Uh, as much as I like to, I mean, I don't want to make a broad statement, because there are preachers, um, there are preachers out there who do damn good work, damn good work. Kenneth Korn is a guy who talks about liberation theology. I respect a great deal. But he has a more wholesome, a more realistic approach in terms of Christianity, which one, uh, a Christianity which comes out of, as, as Cornel West would say, the old gospel tradition. Or when we talk about the context of Africa, we talk about the Christianity that come out of Ethiopia, but teach, teach people with their spirituality in terms of how you relate to one another is the highest virtue. And not just the notion that when you know you put up with all kinds of crap until you die and then you're pie in the sky when you die later. So so the two so we're talking about distinctly two different interpretations in terms of your Christianity. And so unfortunately African preachers have to a large extent internalized this notion in terms of Western Christianity being a viable instrument to convey, you know, how people should see the world, how people should feel. Uh, also, keep in mind that one of the things that also, when we talk about the context of the colonial system in America, one of the things they did, the people who funded churches were the wealthy. They're the ones who created uh, commissions throughout the north, south, east, and west to ensure that they fund churches. Well, they didn't fund churches because churches would empower people. They funded churches because churches would deceive people. It would control the way they think. And the easiest way to control the people is to control the way they think. And this is a problem, not just here in America, but throughout the African world, because our people are come out of a spiritual tradition. And we definitely believe in terms of a higher, a higher being. But the problem is that we're being manipulated to believe that the, you know, that, that the worship of the higher being sometimes, somehow curtails one's ability to think. When, in fact, when we look at the Christianity that originated out of Ethiopia, they talk about the importance in terms of actually, actual knowledge in terms of being able to think about things. Well, the Christians today, when you talk about actually think about things, it confuses them. But if they come up with a tradition, a tradition that says that, well, I walk, by, I, walk by, I walk by faith and not by sight, how idiotic is that? Walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, if you're walking down the train track and the train coming, well, all you have to do is believe that the train is not going to hit you and you're going to be okay. Whereas, whereas if you actually think about it, you say, you know what, one plus one equals two. If I persist with this walking with a train, I'm going to get hit subsequently killed. But 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 that tradition in terms of actually understanding that religion empowers people to think is one that's been long lost. And, and unfortunately African preachers were a big part in deceiving the masses of folks, not just in America, but throughout the throughout the African world. So that's my view on that. Well to me if you're not an anti Zionist, you you miss the whole Christian philosophy. I mean, what Jesus was teaching. And uh, so anybody who's preaching is not anti-Zionist and uh, opposed to this Israeli project uh, is off is off, off point. And uh, I'll just leave it right there. Hmm. 
Sister Hanny, your response? Well, I, I think that I think that it's it's really off base if any minister now does not address the humanity of the African people here in America. I can tell you that. And um most of them do. However, like Brother said, there there are some that are very good and um it just amazes me that when one can think that that is not a part of what they should be doing because of whatever brainwashing they choose to have and and they should all be activists but I will say this and I believe this is happening now even during Dr. King's days of trying to get the churches together we have a, a misnomer here and believe that there was a lot of churches and everybody was together behind Dr. King on his civil rights uh, stance but there were many of them who were afraid the churches didn't go along with him and they didn't want him stirring up all that trouble and coming into their communities doing that because they they were already brainwashed. And so I think that's what we also face here today in modern times with the caveat that, as I've said to people many times, it's not a lot of people still going to church, not like it was, and yet we put that banner on those people in, in, that are in leadership because we do have these mega ministries, a few black mega ministries, but yet when you take a total look at it, um, the churches are becoming more and more empty, black churches across this nation, because the young people are not buying into it, and they have different lifestyles that don't fit into it. So I think, you know, all those things have to be acknowledged as well. Thank you. You know, panelists, I just would like for y'all just give me give me your initial response when I raise this philosophical statement. It's related directly to question of power and wealth and how people have been conditioned to conceive, how they conceive what power and wealth is. Often people make this philosophical statement, and I'm not quite sure what the basis of it um, come from, but they make the statement that power takes what, is wo- what it won't. Power takes what it won't. So what's the implication of that? Why do people make, make, make that statement? What's the point? I'm not quite clear on it. Can y'all add some clarity um, to that philosophical statement when people make these statements? Where are they going with this when they say power takes what it wants? And is that universally true? If that's all what power does, does it always do that? So I'd just like to hear your response to that to that philosophical statement. Power takes what it wants what it wants. Um I would I I think that what, what is meant by that is that those people that are, that have political economic power want to stay in power and would do what, whatever it takes to try to maintain that. But uh, the study of human history indicates that no empire 
lasts forever. And uh and um and it will be eventually proven that uh that uh that 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 the U that the US is no exception to that rule. But I think uh but I think what uh you know what it means is the fact that those who have political and economic power always seek to have more and more of it. And uh, that's a characteristic of exploitative societies. But uh, in societies where um, where humanism and uh, you know socialism are are, are the guiding principles, uh, a different way, a different outlook is possible, and uh, people do things for the collective. So it depends upon the type of society uh, you're talking about, and um, you know. So I, uh, that's what I, uh, I, I I take that to mean that in a in an exploitative society, the people that have power seek to to, to maintain it by, by by all means at their disposal. You know, I think I yeah. would have to add. Oops, go on. Go ahead, go ahead. Go. Okay, I, I would I would say I would have to add to that. White male power takes what it wants, and it's kind of the same thing to what you're just saying, brother. Because I, I think you have to look at that society. I think you have to look at that power mindset of who who has the power, because I believe there are people who have power that don't feel like they take what they want. Um. I think we see examples of that all around us. The problem that exists now is that the white male power system has been, uh, I guess, I would say poisoning the world. Um, And yet there are some people that take that and look at it in a different manner, that these powerful people take what they want and that's okay and that they have that their their blessings by doing it. So I'm going to I'm going to say to your to your your request that it's the white male power system that takes what it wants and and sees it that way. But not power takes what it wants. Thank you. Yeah, well, you know, there's a there's a long Western history sort of legitimizing that notion that you take what you want. Uh, so when we look at uh, philosophers like Voltaire, Machiavelli, or even Hobbes, and this, this notion continually comes up where you take what you want, that it's okay, it's justifiable, that what you're doing is rational and sane, then, of course, when you, once you indoctrinate to that school of thought, then, of course, uh, it's very difficult to see uh, alternative realities in terms of how society can be organized. But I think more importantly, I think, you know, you know how so- societies are structured, to a large extent, it's going to determine to what extent that kind of philosophy takes hold. In, a, in the West, where you have a hierarchical relationship, which means that the, the, those structures that, up, that, that, that are on the top have more power than those beneath it, so therefore then it makes it easier for those at the top to, to practice exploitation. But if you look at traditional ancient Africa, and you look in terms of the hierarchical structure of society, where it was flat, which means that everybody's on the same level, and so nobody's more important than anybody else, that we're all in this together, then you have a different philosophy in terms of how you use power. That when to the extent that power is used, it's used to benefit everybody and not and, and not, not some, some groups. 
So clearly, uh, you know, when we, when we talk about, you know, in, in, in the Western context, when we talk about politics with the warmth, then clearly we see this. We got we got an orange person in the White House now that's pretty, which is very emblematic of, of the problem that we're talking about philosophically when we talk about, you know, the role of power. This guy has no filters. I mean, but keep in mind, it's easy to blame this orange individual, you know, for the problems uh, of, of the side of the world without looking at a system in place that facilitates this kind of ruthlessness. And so this is a fundamental problem we have. So there has to be some differentiation between uh, that Western point of view in terms of how you see the world versus the Eastern point of view in terms of how you see the world. Uh, it is my hope that China would actually understand the, the, the is, is Eastern roots in terms of why a new paradigm is important to the survival of the planet and survival of humanity and not embrace this Western notion that it's all about take what you want, even though at great destruction, even mean destroying yourself with a planet, you proceed to do so simply because it's justified in doing so. So clearly, I think the philosophical thing that you talk about, Brother Lee, is, 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 is very apparent when we talk about the history of the West in terms of propensity, in terms of to take what you want, uh, to destroy, uh, to get, in order to get what you want. So I think this kind of thing is, is, is very, very, very um, uh, um, um, routine in context of Western civilization. And I think it's one that the sister had alluded to greatly impacts on the minds of our people who also think, many of which you think, that in fact that um, you know, controlling other folks is the highest aspiration that a human being can hope to achieve. So when we talk about class, you talk about those Africans who got a little money, got a little status, got a little wealth, who think that their obligation is to oppress other African people simply because it makes them, uh, perceive, make them, make them perceive themselves as somehow powerful, I think this is a kind of uh, foolish um, uh, 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 mindset. Which, which has to be extinguished. But it's going to take work. First and foremost, is take discussion around ideas and get people to understand there are more one way to organize the society. Brother Moses. Oh, we are. This power, you know, where does this power reside? I mean, this is, you know, does it reside with the people or does it reside with a handful full of uh, elite and uh, you know, just might make right. You know, that's the thing. You know, you find the people who feel like if they that they have the might, they then it, it, that it's okay because you know the survival of the fittest type mentality. And you know, this is not this is not a humanitarian way of looking at society. Uh, this is this is all capitalist and exploited viewpoints. And you know, we. We need a, a communal, communal type power, and, uh, which resides with the people, and, and we're all working together for the common good. And you know, this, you know, this is uh, this is the kind of society we should be striving for, as opposed to this survival of the fittest type mentality. Thank you. Well done, panelists. And I raised that question. I'm sort of along the, follow along the same line of some of the points that was articulated earlier by all of y'all. And um, like Sister Hanny raised and Brother Haki in particular, in terms of you know how people conceive power. Because, you know, power is like anything else. It's a tool that can be used positively or negatively. But I don't think it's uh, automatically implied that just to have power means that you have to take, or even to acquire power, you got it by taking. So many times when I hear people say that, I think they use that for certain justification in terms of certain things that 
may favor what they are doing or have done or have definitely been influenced by other people or other models. So I just thought it would be really interesting, you know, when I constantly hear people say power will take, because I know power does always have to take. And, you know, it's a question that depends on who has the power and how to conceive it. But job well done. Before we make our transition to today's theme, Western Deception or African Corruption Part 2, there's one other point I'd like to give, uh, get the panelists' feedback on. And this was this recent uh, weather report or weather damages that have taken place in the southeast east area of the United States, more particularly North Carolina, South Carolina, and some of Georgia, deal with Hurricane Florence. And um, we'd like to get your feedback in terms of how, up to this point, you viewed the U.S. government response to the conditions and the needs of the folks who have been greatly impacted by this particular um, hurricane. And I'm saying this because it's my understanding that for many of these homes that have been destroyed by the water, by the flooding, that these people will not be compensated or will not have no particular assistance to cover the damages of their homes. Many people have already been reported that their employers have told them if they can't get back to work in a certain day or a certain amount of time, they will be losing their jobs. Ma'am, I'm just raising something, seeing something seen wrong with that picture where you can go homeless overnight and there are no kind of infrastructure to cover these kind of unusual damages. So, panelists, what y'all, what do y'all make up presently how this country, this government is structured in terms of not being able to deal with these kind of crises? And because of global warming, look like this is going to be something that will be going on on a yearly basis. Panelists, your response to how so far these issues are being handled by the U.S. government and its capital system. Well, I think whenever they can get some more uh, oceanfront property, that's what they're really down with, so they can reorganize the land grab. So I I think we won't find anything being done or said about this or expect it to be because that's where they like to hang out is on the water. And they won't do anything about it until there is a – a lot of wealthy white folks living in Wilmington, North Carolina, on that shore there and close to it, because this is just a way to grab the land. And then they'll come up with all kinds of plans how to re redo their properties if they get uh, storms of this, this magnitude. Thank you. Okay, you listen to Africa on the Move. If you have any comments, please feel free to call in at 323-679-0841 and hit 1 and we acknowledge your last four numbers. Okay, I think we have a caller who has something to say. Let me try this caller. We'll come back to your panelists. Let's take caller, caller 2829. You're, you're really gay. Shut up. You're gay. So gay. You're gay. Okay, we have some confusion now, so we'll move forward. Okay, panelists, um, let's continue. 
Anyone else would okay. like to respond to that? Yes. Can you um, hear me? I want to add to what. Um... Hello? Go ahead, Brother Anthony. Yes, go ahead, Brother Anthony. Yeah. Yeah, I'll say I want to add to uh, to what Sister Hattie said, and the fact that uh, that this is a system that 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 doesn't that cares more about the property of the ruling class than it does about humanity. Now, in the society where 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 where, where, where human life is uh, is primary. Uh, no, every resource at the, at the disposal of that society is used for, to preserve human right life and restore the living conditions as much as possible. Now, when, now, now, when hurricanes hit Cuba, for example, you know, just to give an example, uh, let's see, the resources of the entire society. Are 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 amassed to preserve human life and property as much as possible, and uh, and 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 people aren't aren't thrown out in the street. They aren't thrown off their jobs. Uh, you know, they give them help. Now, granted, uh, the quality of housing in Cuba may not be the best in the world, but. Uh, uh, Cuban society does make sure does do a good job of making sure that the masses of its population has a place to live, and and Cuba is prone to hurricanes, and uh, you know and uh, you know and uh, because human life is a priority, they mass the resource to make sure that's preserved. In contrast to a uh, capitalist society. Where, uh, where where everything is privatized, so that if you don't have insurance, you, you're screwed. Basically, if anything, if a natural disaster, uh, you know, affects your house, and we've seen this before in the case of New Orleans with Hurricane Katrina uh, a few uh, a few years ago with Houston and. Uh, uh, let's see another part of Louisiana, I think. But uh, but again, uh, with you know with uh, uh, you know with climate change caused by the ravages of capitalism, this is gonna uh, uh, this is gonna uh, uh, happen more and more often. It's just a mat- It's just a question of where. And uh, you know, and 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 it's gonna continue to be a problem until the people get organized to change the system. I, I, think, concur. Uh, well, I concur. I concur. I concur. I concur greatly. Uh, the thing is that we're talking about the function of the marketplace. In the context of capitalism, capitalism, when we talk about the marketplace, what we're simply saying, all they're saying is that you have the right to make profit by, in, in, by any means. Well, if you have a right to make profit by any means, the mere fact that the people lost their homes, you know, to, to a hurricane or tornado is insignificant. What's more important is how do you minimize your losses in terms of how you minimize the amount of money that you actually pay out to the to the to the, to the claimants? Uh, one of the things that when we talk about you know flooding, one of the things most of these insurances don't cover flooding. You have to go to the federal government for you know flood insurance. But even then, there's no guarantee that you can get 100 percent of the debt of the money of your, of your money uh, based upon the amount of, of damage actually done. So even in the context of dealing with the federal government, 
they're limited in terms of how much money they're going to pay out to people. Simply because for them uh, to pay out that kind, pay out large sums of money, is simply unattainable and something they simply won't do. As far as the private insurers, uh, one of the things that you know they talk about, well, you may have hurricane insurance, but if their position is that your house was destroyed by wind, or your 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 your, your house was destroyed by water, or destroyed by uh, some other act of nature, then you don't qualify in terms of benefits. And even the benefits that they do pay out, they're minimal because in the context of capitalism, they got a right to, to maintain some kind of economic, um, um, uh, economic uh, per, not, not parity, but economic, economic standing. Yeah, well, you know, so they, they have that right to do that. And so therefore they go to court and say, listen, if I paid out all the claims, that means I'm going to go bankrupt. In terms of capital society, I have a right to be a have a business, and so therefore this is a conflict in terms of my right, you know, as 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 one who strives to be a capitalist. So clearly, they, they, there's a no-win situation for the masses of people when it comes to this so-called marketplace. And this is what people have been saying. On one hand, we talk about a situation where these markets are part responsible for the destruction that we're seeing in terms of creating the factors that are favorable to global warming, and then when these hurricanes, these tornadoes come up and destroy property. Uh, there is no, there's, there's no recourse. There's nothing for the individual to do but to take their losses. It doesn't impact on the wealth as much as it does poor working class people who are trying to maintain a mortgage. Wealthy people can say, okay, you don't pay me back all the money that I'm entitled to based upon my insurance policy? That's okay. I got enough uh, reserves, enough refunds, enough money in the bank or, or, or investments where I can buy, build a brand new house. No problem. Well, working class people don't have that luxury. They don't have that option. And so, therefore, they suffer more. But as Brother Anthony said, though, until people come to the realization that you understand it has this fundamental change the paradox, or, 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 or that, that uh, I said a paradox, but fundamentally change the paradigm which people are confronted with, nothing's going to change. If you don't destroy this capitalist system, then if you think for one second that somehow the situation will become better as time goes on, then you're sadly delusional. In fact, not only will these situations continue to be more horrific because global warming is continuing, it's becoming more and more, more and more, uh, um, um, uh, more and more uh, um, destructive. Given that reality, then we can anticipate more and more, dist- more and more loss of property, uh, uh, you know, for people in this country, and we can expect that insurance companies will continue to dodge their responsibility in terms of providing those homeowners uh, who have insurance uh, when these kind of tragedies occur. So clearly, you know, if you don't create another paradigm, you don't create a different way of doing things, a different world, different way of seeing the world, a different way of interacting with fellow human beings, then what's going to happen, you get more of the same, which means that for working in the poor, poor people, it means that you continue to get screwed in the end. And that's just a, a core reality in terms of capitalism. Brother Jabari, are you there? I'm here. Comments to this question How they deal with this flood situation Yes we can Yes You know um, It's very interesting I was reading an article That was in the New York Times Regarding how people are going to be um, Somewhat compensated In regards to damages It's very interesting In terms of the language That these insurance companies use They come up with um, They find very slick um, Legalistic um, jargon that they use to ensure that people can never be fully prepared in the event of um, an act of mother nature causing property damage. Because as it was alluded to, one thing is an example, 
water damage is something like I only I can't remember it's a very small percentage, maybe something like fifty percent of people with insurance even have water damage protection. So that means that if they can prove that water was responsible for damages of those homes that people don't have the resources to buy another home, that's property loss. Nothing that they did, but unfortunately due to circumstances that would be property loss. So it's very interesting how you look at these different um sectors of people, they all come together to make sure that certain people are going to be taken advantage of because one thing we got to understand is that when you have these mass displacements from these um, major storms, the people with money are going to come in and get the property for little or nothing so that they can flip it and sell it for double of what they paid for. So we got to understand that it's an easy way to employ some of those eminent domain kind of tactics, um, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. What can you say, Brother Moses? What can you say? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a tragic situation when we have these natural disasters uh, and we live in a capitalist society. Uh, uh, they were saying about Cuba and socialism, you know, there is a, a, a consciousness and a, 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 a society protect human lives over property and uh, unfortunately the profit drive and uh, everything is geared towards the insurance and uh, it's, uh, it's strictly business and uh, uh, preserving profit and uh, paying out as little as possible so, so there are all sorts of legalese and written in fine, fine print to protect them from ever having to pay out pay off these, you know, damages. And that's just, you know, capitalism, and that's, we live in the capitalist system until until the system is changed. That's the way it is. Uh, we can expect more and more of it as, as years go by and this, this global warming continues. And, you know, certainly Donald Trump and the administration is not doing anything to uh, address the issue of global warming. Uh, anything along those lines, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Well, I just think systematically and how the nature of the system is structured, it's just not a sustainable system that will protect the, the interests of other people. And I think people need to look at these internal contradictions and should compel them to fight for change. So anyway, panelists, job well done. What we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for the cause when we come back. We can continue part two discussion on Western deceptions or African corruption. When you come back, we can talk about the HBCU digest and corruption. Uh, we can talk about what recently took place by the Howard University Student Resistance Movement and how that movement was dealt with by certain segments within that community. So right now, we can pause with the cause, and we'll be right back. You gotta listen to Africa on.
tried to encourage you to not to be a buffalo soldier. Stop fighting other people's battles. Stop being used as a tool for the enemy. Mm-hmm. Now, continuing on this road of liberation, we will continue part two theme tonight, which is Western Deception or African Corruption. That was a really interesting article came from the Black Agenda Report, dated September the 6th, 2018, titled HBCU Digest and H. Booker T. Carter Attacks Howard University Protesters. Now, this article raised many contradictions in terms of how we deal with each other as relates to where one seek to represent their own interests. And in this case, we're talking about African students, they have their own interests uh, at Howard University or African people, African students in general have their own interests when it comes to this university community. Now, I read the beginning of this um, particular first paragraph, and panelists, I'd like for y'all to respond to this, because um, the thesis of this article is that do you think that students should take the blame for the criticism of fighting for their own self-interest as relates to corruption and how their money are being mismanaged? It states that the highest stage of oppression is when your own people who speak in the name of pride and empowerment shoot you down for trying to liberate yourself. It can be very confusing, even totalitarian. This is what this is what HBCU Digest um, has done by attacking Howard University student protesters from last spring, blaming them for corruption at their school and the now heightened cash monitoring monitoring under the federal government. To overcome great crimes among your people requires special gathering of yourself. Uh, or disproportionate sometimes break with the past ideas you may have shared with those who portrayed. To be clear, the black-on-black crime here is being carried out by the black misleadership class. In this class, black college administrators and so-called independent black journalists. Panelists from this article, and remember our theme is Western Deception or African Corruption. Do you think the blame will put on the right focus in terms of the corruption has been has been taking place at Howard University as relates to administrating students financing? You know, when I read this article, I've been thinking of numerous instances at various institutions, whether it's Howard or a number of other um, colleges or universities, and there's always interesting discussion anytime the students hold um, corrupt leadership accountable. And one thing that I came across in my research, when you look at who's on the board of governors for Howard University, there are people that are very corporate friendly. So when I look at that, I find it very interesting that the students that were um, did their research and are trying to hold the school leadership accountable for this handling the funds, look at the fact that when you look at um, in terms of the school administration and what their interests are in, 
it gives you a clear picture of why the students have the angle that they feel and the issue in regards to what Howard is doing. Because one thing we have to understand is that Howard University is very unique in terms of the way it's structured and organized, and it has a lot going for it. Perfect example is how they have their own public access station, which is not very common for universities. So when you look at that, they have their own independent media source. They have a power plant that they utilize. It is clear that in given way, um, its location and how close it is to the um, federal government of the U.S., it's very clear why you see these kind of efforts are put in place to um, control what takes place in terms of instead of how it being independent once they wanted to reflect um, the elite. So you have so many students that are not trying to support the protest, but they would rather turn their backs on them because it will be beneficial in terms of them being guaranteed some corporate job or something along those lines, unfortunately. So basically, if you do the oppressive bidding, you get whatever bills they want to give to you. Well, I think if we look at it, I'm going to paint a broad brush um, approach to this. Anytime students at any university in this country historically speak up about anything in colleges, high schools, whatever, mostly colleges because they're, you know, a lot older, you're going to look at people pointing a finger at them and say they shouldn't do that. However, I don't think that I don't think the, the the finger pointing as well. It's those other three fingers pointing back at those who are pointing their fingers at them that I would be concerned about. So no, the the, the uh, finger pointing is in the wrong place. The students have a right to have business taken care of in the proper manner. So absolutely not. And then of course they can always find some. Um, person who uh, is an entertainer or someone who's very popular that, that students might have uh, some respect for to come in and try to disengage them from, from, from their protesting. Yeah, well, let's, let's be clear on something. Essentially what we're talking about is, is the class dynamics. Uh, one of the things we often we don't talk about, but we need to, uh, and that is that when, when we talk about this question of class in the, <clears throat> in the African community, then essentially what we're talking about is the belief among the misleadership class, the middle class black Africans, if you will, whose position is that there's stuff fundamentally wrong with the system, that any inadequacies comes from the masses of people, that they're their own, uh, um, they're, they're their own problems. And so this, 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 this constant disregard in terms of how the system works and how it impacts on the way people think, where people behave, or even people's hopes and expectations, is something that black misleadership class doesn't want to deal with. Because in order for them to deal with the sociological aspect in terms of how the, the institution of society impacts the, the brain for the minds of African people, then it, has to, then it has to understand that it has a responsibility in terms of, you know, mediating to the extent possible uh, a lot of, this, a lot of this, these, um, these negative aspects that negatively impact on the minds of, of African children or African people in general. But I think that it's easier simply to, to, in your mind, simply conclude that the problem that African people face is self-inflicted, that the problem is that there's something fundamentally wrong with African people. And this is why they can't rise to the ranks in terms of 
uh, opportunity. So I think that uh, it's one of the things that we have to really deal with because what, what happens is that anytime you have to have this kind of discourse around the role of institutions in terms of how they shape the way people behave, how they how they act, the black misleadership class don't want to deal with those kind of discourse because it, uh, somehow it would, in their mind, uh, um, sort of um, undermine or reduce their accomplishments, you know, as quote unquote, uh, uh, you know, intellectuals. So I, I think that until we deal with that fundamental question in terms of, you know, uh, why does black misleadership class think, you know, that the system is fine, until we deal with that phenomenon, then we can't move forward in terms of this antagonism that exists between those of us who are trying to change the system for the betterment versus those who acquiesce to the system, who want the system to remain, who support the status quo because their position is that they benefit from the system as it currently exists. So we have to have that discussion. I would add that um, that the struggle between the interests of African students has been odd historically with the college administrations for as long as Africans have been given access to uh, higher institutions and capitalist societies. And I want to uh, quote this paragraph on the third page of this article. And it's something we need to bear in mind because I think it's related uh, to a discussion we had about neocolonialism last week. HBCUs were created by wealthy, by white wealthy northern industrialists and some sympathetic southern white elites for their own reasons, including to disorient and divide the black community by spreading capitalist ideals among those who owned no land and capital. They wished to create a social class that would apologize for the repression of black sharecroppers, black toilers, and black household domestics mobilizing for mass democratic power. HBCUs were historically founded to destroy the popular revolt for black self-reliance. Now, many aspiring black capitalists preside over HBCUs like they are the black community's dependent capital. Not surprisingly, they are threatened by black labor and black students who don't maintain a servile attitude toward a retrograde conception of black empowerment. I think these are very important points that explain why is it very often historically the interests of, uh, you know, uh, uh, of African students have been at odds with their college administrations. Uh, and that is because the administration represents the interests of the ruling capitalist class, in, uh, you know, in this society. And uh, their role is to, uh, is to maintain uh, the status quo. Whereas the interest of uh, the reason why we send, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, our youth to college is so that they can gain knowledge to alleviate the suffering of humanity, as Kwame Ture pointed out. Now, some now the students who try to play this role and uh, sincerely are ostracized and criticized by. Uh, the ruling uh, African, uh, you know, petty bourgeoisie. 
And uh, this is the problem, uh, and this is the root cause of uh, why neocolonialism runs so rampant in our communities today. Brother Anthony, hold that point. I can come back to you. I believe we have a caller who may have a question coming. We're going to take this caller whose last four number is 2852, caller 2852, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Your question or comment, please. Caller 2852. How are you doing? How are you doing? Good. Um, so uh, just listening and following along with the conversation and the topic at hand, um, I can't help but um, – it, it our indigenous communities are here in the United States where um, tribal governments are falling into capitalism and corruption, such as the oil industry, et cetera, and the, and the mining industry, um, allowing fracking on sacred sites um, and um, extortion um, through the casinos, extortion from um, uh, tribal presidents and uh, tribal councils. And um, those that are in bed with the, uh, with the cartels from, from Mexico who um, are bringing drugs onto the reservation and um, allowing um, drugs to be moved through, uh, you know, through the reservation for their own gain, for, uh, for money, et cetera. So, um, of course, it all does stems from colonialism and the, um, you know, uh, the teaching of, you know, this way of life from the uh the slave owners and the uh oppressors and colonizers uh, whatever um you may call them um it just it just seems like this scenario <clears throat> is um you know for a while so you know sovereignty for tribal um groups um in Africa might you know help you know, uh, solve some of the corruption issues. But then again, we have our own tribal sovereignty, and there's still corruption. So um, I don't know. Um, I just see the, the the comparison in that. All right, Carla, we're gonna um, you can put your hold. Stay with us if you want to come back and see it again. But we're gonna respond to your comment, Ellis. You want to respond to his com- uh, comparative um, analysis as relates to. So, question looking at African people versus indigenous people, particularly to how both oppressed groups operate and function under the capitalist system. I think he makes some valid points. Panelist, your response? I agree. Uh, I think uh, I think the way in which uh, the so-called American Indian has been oppressed is uh, fairly similar. It had bears some similarities to the way Africans have been oppressed, uh, except that uh, it, that in the case of the Western Hemisphere, it's even worse because it's happening on their own land. And but they are, but they too, and I'm glad he pointed uh, it was pointed out that they too are also dealing with problems of. Uh, of a class struggle and uh, and the, the ravages of neocolonialism, and uh, so uh, so th- th- there's a class dimension to this that he points out correctly, 
And that the only way we're going to bring an end to this is if the uh, it is the 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 both of our pe- uh, our people have to be organized uh, to build another uh, uh, an alternative world, an alternative to capitalism. But it's going to take the organization and political education of the people to bring that about. And uh, we have to do what we can to transform these institutions so that they're truly institutions for us and not serving uh, the interests of our enemies. Yeah, well, you know, in a nutshell, he's, he's absolutely correct. Uh, but, the, but I think the, the antecedent of it all is, the, uh, is, is capitalism itself. And so anytime you internalize capitalism, one thing to understand is buttressed by a whole system which rewards negative activity or negative ways of thinking. It certainly rewards in terms of preying on one another. So that's inherent in terms of capitalism structures. And so irrespective of where you are, who you are, whether you're on the Indian plantation, I mean Indian reservation or African continent or the cities of America, the capitalism functions the same and doesn't have a devastating impact on people who internalize that. Those people internalize those capitalist uh, 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 mind, uh, uh, mindsets are those individuals who, who are tempted to prey on other people simply because he is, is justifiable and proper. So he's absolutely correct. And the question in terms of corruption is a very, very different question. I think one of the things that, you know, when you, when you talk about corruption, first and foremost, uh, what you have to do, you have to acknowledge that corruption uh, exists and in, 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 in potentially exists in the minds of, in the souls of people. And so, therefore, you have to fundamentally have a structure in place, uh, other than capitalism, that's going to fundamentally address that. You know, in South Africa, Ramaphosa has been trying to tackle corruption, but it's so in, it's so embedded in the society in terms of the way people think, in terms of the structures, that in terms of actually you know, actually uh, being successful, it's, it's almost impossible. So it has to be a total annihilation of the capital system in terms of even begin to even deal with the question in terms of in terms of uh, corruption. In Kenya, they talk about um, chai. It's just a way of life that you expect, uh, the bribes are expected. It's a way of doing business. In Nigeria, it's the same thing. So you got these mindsets which, which is conducive toward uh, the capitalist way of seeing the world or organized around the capitalist way of seeing the world, and as a consequence, preys on its own people and don't give a damn about the destruction and mayhem that ensues as a result of the policies, as a result of the practices that they practice. So clearly he's absolutely correct, um, but it's a fundamental problem in terms of the capitalism. And unless you destroy capitalism, then you're just, you're just spinning your wheels. Well, if you don't mind me um, adding real quick, um, I wrote five um, steps of decolonization for indigenous peoples. Um, step one, of course, would involve the eradication of capitalism and um, imperialism. Uh, step two is the regaining, revitalization of our languages, of our indigenous languages, and the integrity of um, our tribal identities. Uh, to know, like, you came from these ancestors from this specific region, know your history, know your family's history, know your people's history, and if you can't obtain that, then um, find people who do know that of the same um, uh, national uh, ethnic group or background that you come from and find a way to um, indoctrinate yourself into uh, into that, you know, specific tribe uh, and, uh, with their permission. Um, three, 
would be the eradication of uh, monotheistic um, um, Judeo-Abrahamic colonial religions um, and the re-adopting re of uh, polytheistic pantheons uh, based on the um, spiritualities and um, earthly, earth knowledge of your people um, and your ancestors uh, prior to colonialism. Uh, step four would be to um, allow your people to create a community um, based on uh, working towards sovereignty and autonomy based on your peoples. And, and step five is the training um, and self-sufficiency uh, self, um, <clears throat> um, through regaining that war mentality of your ancestors and defending yourselves and your territories and having to pick up arms and bear arms to defend your people and, um, you know, training your, your, your people to be soldiers again, training your people to be hunter-gatherers again, training your people to be, um, you know, um, uh, crop growers again, and um, whether they were agriculturalists or whether they were, um, like I said, hunter-gatherers, et cetera, to build a uh, self-sufficient lifestyle within this society um, that is parallel to what we are now, but also ridding of the colonial chains and and kind of taking, you know, realizing that um, through re-education and, and re-examining um, identity um, and certain language that is used, such as uh, primitive, et cetera, um, that, that these uh, quote-unquote savage tactics were actually um, the most um, sufficient way of living. And uh, basically revitalizing those things. And I think those, uh, that's what I call the, the five steps of uh, decolonization. Uh, Carla, you make some very interesting point, points. And what we would like to do right now, we would just like to ask you if you can, we'd like to stay in contact with you, if you can communicate with us after the program by writing us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at Gmail. We'd like to get That's back right. in touch with you and maybe for future shows, maybe have you on as a guest to deal with some of the subjects and ideas that you may have. Okay, again, you know, you can reach us at Africa on the move, the number two at gmail.com, okay? And All right, thank you. Thank you for your contribution. Well, you can stay on. Um, okay. Panelists, um, there are some issues that this article raised that I think we definitely need to um, at least um, talk a little bit about as we relates to our theme tonight, Western deception or African corruption. And it stated that some people want to reform prisons, police, and schools, but through many will speak against institutional racism, far, far fewer seem to believe there is actually something permanent wrong with these or other institutions. This suit to those whom opportunity means find their places in the hierarchy. Interpret that point for me, Brother Haki. What do you mean by that? Uh, I don't think I caught all of what you're saying, Brother Africa. Uh, I, caught, I caught a little bit of it. Can you paraphrase what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. it talk about how, and talk about the contradiction, how we, how we think in the system. We said we're against the system, then at the same time, we find ways to continue to support it. Let me just read it again. It says, some people want to reform prisons, police, and schools. But though many will speak against institutional racism, far fewer seem to believe that there's actually something permanent wrong with these or other institutions. This suit to those who equal opportunity means find their places in this hierarchy. What do you think the opposite? What, in terms of reading that, 
how do you analyze the point that the, the contradiction the author is raising with, with, with those statements? That we yeah, well, sometimes want to go ahead, go ahead, brother Hake. Yeah, well, you know, there's a, a certain amount of anticipated socialization that exists in, in society. In America, you know, we're um, we often tempered um, uh, uh, what we have to say with what the expectations are uh, in terms of our responsibility as citizenry. So it's okay to critique uh, certain, uh, you know, certain institutions. It's okay as long as you don't critique them in a very sharp kind of way. Uh, but when you when you talk at the, the catalyst of the problem, which is the capitalism, once you start getting that in that arena, then that becomes problematic both for those people who are listening to what you have to say and to the individual themselves. So this anticipated socialization that exists in terms of this this, this tendency for people to, to, to modulate what they have to say is, is embedded in rewards and punishment. If, in fact, you have the audacity to actually talk about the way the system really operates and the shortcomings, and particularly as it impacts on those, those institutions like law enforcement, penal institutions, and so forth and so on, then you run into very rough terrain. I mean, you're not what you have to say is not going to be favorable, which means that your, 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 your desire to move up the hierarchy to get better jobs and make more money becomes compromised, and so therefore you don't do that. So this explains the diversion or, 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 or the, uh, the divergence between uh, explaining uh, reality but then often coming up with a, with, a, with a conclusion which has nothing to do in terms of real, a real indictment of what's really going on. So I think that this is part of you know, way you know, opportunism exists. It goes hand-in-hand hand with classism. So people who have higher aspirations in society, you don't expect them to adequately critique the society. They're not going to do it. They're going to only, for instance, they'll only talk about those things which are non-threatening. But the moment you talk about capitalism, that becomes threatening because essentially what you're saying is that you, you're articulating that you realize this is a house of cards and as inevitably this is going to fall. But if you just simply talk about police brutality, that's fine because that can be seen as a kind of, uh, a kind of um, uh, unusual event, an event that happens occasionally but it has no real systemic power behind it, and so therefore it's okay to talk about that, even though we do understand systemically that the police brutality of African people or people of color or poor people is very much part of the system. But you can make the case that, in fact, that it's just isolated incidents of people being killed or brutalized by the police. So I think it has a lot to do with anticipated socialization, and, and, and that's why you have this diversion in terms of what people have to say and the reality of it all. You know, Sister Hannah and Brother Moses, they also make the point that the fact is that HBCUs, the subject of much experimental discussions about black autonomy, were never created as a product of a social revolution in black self-reliance. Other words, saying these institutions wasn't created to really deal with uh, African people to be self-reliant, independent, free. Do you agree with that? That with, with that uh, analysis? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was definitely never in the plan. And whenever that comes to the discussion floor, then that individual, if they have any kind of um, position of power where they can make it happen, they get quickly relieved of their position. And so there's always been this, we want you to rely on us, whether... It's from that um, group that that made 
those kinds of things happen around the historically black colleges, whether it was uh, the Jewish Rose Walls, the Jewish ones that uh, participated in this um, level, which, you know, I'm not complaining. I went to a historically black college for my undergraduate degree. I'm, I'm glad it was there. However, certain ones in certain times you, you did not have to um, be brainwashed into their line of thinking and it was certainly a lot better than going to the integrated colleges at the outset where you were quite impressionable at 18 as opposed to when you go to the graduate school level you, you kind of have your stance on things kind of where you may want them to be and what you believe in and, and that kind of thing. And depending upon your family teachings and what have you. So, yeah, I definitely would say, yeah, that that is that was never one of those uh, top-of-the-line um, points that people wanted, wanted us to get to as a people. And dare you even think about saying it, just like Marcus Garvey and the brother that was there, uh, talking about the indigenous people, um, that plan sounds like similar to that one as well with different um, names, but the concept is somewhat the same. And so and I would say um, that, you know, we, we all have both have that same problem. We all probably have some Native American in this anyway. The Indian people were here. And so there were even some schools created. That's a whole other level of oppression there when the children were taken and and put in uh, these uh, different orphanages from the people. And, uh, and um, anyway, I won't go down that bunny trail. But, yeah, definitely it's uh, something that was never in the making to be a self-sufficiency on anything. Missionaries. Thank you. Brother Moses, it talk about the black the black minimum professional classes will preside over dependent black communities institutions have to pretend that they maintain some type of liberation program for their people. They cannot do it. They are not permitted to do it. They don't have the character to even want to do it. So they pretend to be black and prideful. It's part of the totalitarianism. You agree with that kind of assessment, Brother Moses, as we find ourselves today in 2018? Yes, certainly the schools are, schools are part of the system. Uh, they're made to... To uh, to uh, adapt people to live within the system and to function within the system, to you know maybe to be be better able to it than someone who who hasn't gone to school and therefore be able to get more of the of the uh, fruits of the system out of it because they, you you've adapted and you've learned the rules and regulations of the system and you function you're you're functioning part of the system. Uh, you know, capitalism, you know, is not going to die up itself. Uh, uh, there's socialism, utopian, and socialism, scientific. 
And the only the scientific way is to recognize that the ruling class has an institution and organization called the government, and, and it's protecting and protecting them and perpetuating their interests. And that the only way through scientific socialism is to deal with that government and that in the ruling class itself, uh, and by dismantling that organization and setting up a, a, a socialist government. And uh, so, you know, anything short of that, short of that, is is going to be ultimately going to going to uh, somehow be operated as and function as part of the system sooner or later because capitalism will co-opt uh, the, the institution. And uh, this is the problem we're faced with, uh, and it's a challenge, but we must beat it. Thank you. You know, Brother Anthony, before we close out, L, we can find a statement for today's program. We'll continue the discussion. It talks about the relationship between the African administrators or those who oversee these so-called institutions. It talks about how certain government structures have relationship to this institution and government itself, how they all have a relationship to maintaining and allowing this corruption and it's still to take place within these African institutions. Can you talk a little bit about that from your perspective once you have as related to reading this article? Okay. Yes. Um, there is uh, there is an oversight board uh, that oversees the financial aid uh, uh, programs of all the HBCUs, as well as the uh, predominantly uh, American Indian and uh, Hispanic uh, colleges and universities. And uh, what they do is they allow these administrations to steal, uh, for, uh, you know, from from, the, uh, from their students, and uh, they encourage the accreditation boards for these colleges to look the other way. And this is supposedly some sort of an entitlement. Uh, you know to uh, uh, you know to uh, to uh, to allow these institutions to exist, and uh, this is a perpetuation of uh, corruption. And I want to add that the purposes of uh, colleges and universities in a capitalist society is to provide the intelligentsia from which the leadership will perpetuate the ideas of the bourgeois ruling class. That's what the purposes of any college and a capitalist society is for. And so the HBCUs are not, uh, are not, uh, were never designed to encourage African self-alliance, not by any stretch. Uh, they were, uh, uh, the, uh, they were, uh, you know, designed to produce a comprador class that would perpetuate the uh, ideas of capitalism. That is why neocolonialism is so rampant in African communities across the world today. 
Brother Haki. It makes the point that the real struggle is to defend and advance independent black institutions with liberation values. But J.L. Carter and the HBCU Digest both critique and work for white supremacy. It said that Carter and the HBCU Digest are the friends of the black professional hierarchy at HBCUs who exploit black students and steal education funds for their development. Is this what's happening historically when we come to these African institutions? Because we know there's a history where many African institution presidents may be caught for mismanaging funds, and these same presidents are circle around the country to another university. And look like it's, a, it's, it's like a click of them and like a three-ring circle. They move from one university to another university, continue to do the same thing, and very rarely hear any of them really going to jail. And I used to ask myself how and why that continue to exist. We have certain presidents move from one university to another doing the same thing, and there's really no um, accountability to this form of corruption. Talk a little bit about that point. Yeah, the reason why they're able to do that is because they perform a uh, noble service for the power structure. Uh, keep in mind, the power structure is quite aware of who they are. They know exactly who they are. Uh, we have a situation here at Virginia Union University. We had a similar uh, a, a, the head of the university uh, came from another university from under the same circumstances, but yet he was given a job at Virginia University. So clearly, uh, those positions of power recognize, you know, uh, you know that this kind of thing happens, and as a consequence, there's no real policy or rules in place to ensure that once you're convicted of financial crimes at the university, that you don't get a second bite of the apple, that there's nowhere for you to go, you know, after you commit such a heinous, heinous uh, act. Uh, and, and, and again, it's all about ensuring that uh, you know the interest of the power of the ruling class is is, uh, is carried out. And nobody does that more than these, these so-called uh, administrators of these historical black universities. Uh, their mindset is is pretty much petty bourgeois. It's not about the empowerment of, of African people. It's certainly not about the empowerment of the university, or in, or in terms of certainly it's not about moving the the the, the, the institutional direction that's revolutionary. That simply is not going to happen. They're not predisposed to do that simply because they come from a, 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 a background which suggests, you know, that this is the greatest country in the world. And so, therefore, the idea that to become better, become better is, 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 a, is a, foolish, uh, a foolish endeavor and that this is the best we possibly can achieve. And so they're quite comfortable with the way things currently exist. So, again, the people in positions of power, you know, understand who they are. They encourage them to be able to move around the country, carrying their corrupt practices with them, to serve the interests of the powerful. And it's, and it's that simple. I think the students at Harvard University did a very good job in terms of pointing out this, this, this contradiction. Uh, so, but again, you know, uh, it's, it's by design. Uh, nobody ever, no one ever goes, no one ever tried, no one ever convicted. Uh, discussion is, is, is only, uh, most of the time discussion takes place within the context of, you know, you know on, on, on the university level. So clearly, um, you know, the power structure wants it to go on. In fact, this is why no one is 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 is, is, is vilified as part of doing this because it presents benefits to power structure. Panelists for the night, I want all y'all weigh in on this question: How is the corruption on European universities different from how they deal with corruption on African universities? 
the corruption, the corruption at white universities. One thing, corruption at white universities. Uh, once it's known, uh, they don't get a second bite of the apple. That's their career. They're done. They're done. They don't get a chance to go elsewhere and, and continue their practice. So it's a different kind of standard when you talk about corruption at white universities versus historical African universities. So I think they take it more seriously when it comes to white universities, but it's not a factor uh, when it comes to, to African universities. So I think that's just a given, given the fact that we're talking about the, the, the politics, you know, of, of these of these uh, educational institutions. Uh, one is important as far as the ruling class is concerned. The other is unimportant. So I think it's a reflection of how they treat the corruption at these various universities. See, I think it's um, the white universities, I think what they do is they hide it. Um, to me, it, it, it is equal to um, the in the black community um you, let's, take, let's take the drug problem that's in the black community. Despite the fact that there's as much drug uh, problems in the suburbs, probably more because they have more money to buy drugs and they have more access to drugs and they yet spotlight these black communities all the time in the cities so they can get this blight thing. And I think in any portion of our of our uh, Cities and institutions. When it's when it's when it's white corruption, I think it's on the hush hush move now. Perhaps they slide them out quietly, but you don't. I don't think you see the kind of um, um, spotlight put on the corruption when it's white corruption, white collar crime, or whatever you want to call it. Any of that. So that that's my thought on it. I just I just think they kind of keep it hush hush, and I certainly don't believe there's any more integrity in the white universities around issues with money. I don't think there's any more integrity there than it is in our historically black colleges. Thank you. You know, I noticed one thing in terms of distinction of how they handle these same sets of problems, as you contrast the two. Universities, the Europeans and the Africans, they stated that when the Africans have these kind of financial problems, they bring in certain um, managing bodies to oversee and count and monitor how they spend their cash flow monies. Whereas with the white universities, the European universities, with these large foundations, they don't do that. They still allow them the free reign to govern and count their own monies. Uh, again, you know, it, it's, it's just real interesting how they deal with this. But anyway, panelists, job well done. What we're going to do right now, we run out of time. We're going to have to close out for tonight. We ask each one of y'all to give y'all final thoughts. But before we do that, we'll go back to one of our callers who is still with us and ask that caller to give, me, give us his final thought based upon what he have heard tonight. We're coming back to caller 2852, caller. Uh, can you give me, if you have any final comments you'd like to make about tonight's program? Yes. Um, what I would like to see, like I mentioned before, is the decolonization process and everything that I stated before. Um, I'd also like people to to think about, especially people my age, I'm 23 years old, and I want people my age and uh, younger and, and in my age range to um, 
think more um, about our history, our cultural identity, et cetera, learning our languages, and to utilize our time and energy and our resources, such as um, the Internet that we have, um, <clears throat> to learn about these things and to uh, basically understand what is cognitive dissonance, what is humanity, and what is natural law, because those things will always come up in the conversation and uh, how do we um, achieve um, our humanity again, uh, something that I believe we lost. How do I, how do we um, re-identify with natural law and follow those um, aspects of uh, be they society-based or be they um, perspective-based because everything has a perspective and a worldview, but um, also how do we break through cognitive dissonance, which is in a mental disease, really, if you think about it. We thank you, Carla, for your participation tonight. And we're going to Brother Moses, your final thoughts for tonight. Well, we need an organization of the working class uh, to bring about some scientific socialism by dealing with this government that is oppressing us and uh, repressing us. And and that's the bottom line. Uh, uh, all 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 organizations, short of, of of the ideological, you know, understanding of the situation, uh, is bound to be be co-opted one way or the other. And uh, only the power of the working class is capable of dealing with this situation. And so. Uh, I'll just leave it right there uh, Thank you and have a good night Thank you Brother Moses for your contribution To today's program And we now will go to our sister Hattie Sister Hattie your final thoughts for tonight Oh my final thoughts For tonight are one thing The caller that's on there The 23 year old You have given me so much hope tonight Because when we find one that Has some um, Consciousness I know there has to be many more out there. So thank you so much for giving me some hope. That's number one. And number two, I think that we each, one of us, even if it's one person, we have to teach each other what needs to be taught to bring our people to a more conscious level. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Hattie. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight? Yes, my final thought for tonight is... um, we must uh, work harder to form uh, organizations that genuinely serve the interests of our people, and uh, we must uh, politically edu- be politically educated and study our history and culture. And uh, for more information about the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC please visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thank you, Brother Anthony. And Brother Hackey, your final thoughts for tonight. All right, a couple of things. African Women's Association, we do the Black History Educational and Cultural Tour to Cuba. We're going to Matanza, Trinidad, and Havana, December 27th to January 3rd, 2019. For more information, contact us at 804 549 7492 
or area code 202-714-9435, or visit our website at www.hypecubatours.com. And my final statement, of course, is to encourage people to unravel the matrix. Thank you, Brother Haki. And to our listening audience, you are listening to Africa on the Moon. It's a weekly program that comes on every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. It's an international Pan-African talk show. We seek to take issues that are affecting our community and try to come up with a better understanding of not only how it's impacting our community, but how we can change it. And we understand that where there are unity of thought, we can have unity of action. So we encourage you each Sunday evening, if you can set aside two hours of your precious time to come and engage with us, because where there is unity of struggle, all things are possible. And remember, without information you cannot think, and without organization you cannot think clearly. We encourage you to join an organization that is working for your people. So until next time, we are continuing on the segment, Western Deception or African Corruption. Join us next week. So we'll leave you with the song by Peter Tox, Peter Tosh on Equal Rights, followed by a presentation on from Brother Kwame Ture dealing with lessons from history. Until next time, let's remember to always describe the forward album, Backwards Neville.
have been allotted uh, half an hour and uh, within this half an hour we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships of the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60 and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, Within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. That's if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous.
certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they, are served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time. But it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> And one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses in drawing lessons from the 60s must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be the same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. This aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. 
This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. That was life. <laughs> Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly, if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students, then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, 
bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students joined with the masses of the people came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus we must not confuse ourselves, the job of students are clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. Uh, thus, students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood, and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and in a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. 
Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything. anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interests. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. 
Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Snick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you're always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. 
He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on a college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yeah. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course. Conscious he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind, even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus, they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere, the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is, of course, the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question, and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point then, the final point then, you must not become confused by the American capitalist system which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> 
you a volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masters must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clairpoise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we, who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you.
Africa on the move, Brother Africa. We thank you for allowing you to come into your homes tonight. And if you like a copy of this program and others, as well as if you like to send us comments on this program and others, please email us at Africa on the move number two at gmail.com. We look forward and seeing you next week on Africa on the Moon at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time.